how come California can't manufacture enough COVID testing kits to test hundreds of thousands of people every day and thereby uh, not have to lock down everybody, but just identify rapidly all those who are infected and isolate them instead of the 40 million people. And so far, California hasn't. I still think that California, because it has several billion dollars in the bank, could call together at some summit all the different manufacturers, innovators. I mean, Google makes all sorts of things. And we have other people in the biotech industry. We have CRISPR-4. We have so much. Why can't they all be brought in and say, OK, guys, this is what you got to do. How much? And then haggle a bit over the price, put the money on the table, and get the damn tests in a few weeks. Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Welcome. It's July 15th, 2020, and my guest today is former California Governor Jerry Brown. Governor Brown has spent a lifetime in public service, spanning years in which globalization and technological innovation have come to define politics, security, and culture. Before he turned to politics at the young age of 32 as California Secretary of State, Jerry Brown studied first to be a Jesuit priest and then attended Yale Law School. Governor Brown was California's youngest and oldest governor with nearly three decades in between. During that period, he was mayor of Oakland as well as the Attorney General of California. And I am very much looking forward to this conversation. Welcome, Governor Brown. Thank you. I wanna talk a little bit today about your reflections on the world we live in, how we got here, where we're coming from. And I, I wanted to begin with some thoughts about leadership and leadership historically. And I just wondered, I know you, mention heroes now and then that you look towards that help you chart your way forward and articulate your responses to issues. But I was wondering if there are any presidents in particular or other statesmen that particularly inspired you over the course of your career and you're thinking about how to be a leader. Actually, I don't have that experience. If we're talking about leadership, heroes, the only thing that comes to mind is in high school, when we read a few chapters or pages from Thomas Carlyle, Heroes and Hero Worship. So I noted that's the first time I got acquainted with it. Of course, then in college, I read uh, War and Peace, and the last chapter is just the common soldier is determining history, and the generals don't know what the hell's going on. In terms of presidents, of course, Lincoln and his second inaugural and Gettysburg Address and a and others, there, there's an integrity and a power and almost a sacred quality of his being that comes across, which is totally 100% different than all the other politicians that one encounters in the past and today. And the other is, I did like John Kennedy, the way he spoke, because I was much younger when I met him and when I would see him on television. 
Uh, but I've gone back recently, I reread a speech at the American University uh, calling for a uh, ban on nuclear tests in the environment. And he talked about how Russia and the United States share the same planet, the same world, and the, their children and grandchildren will inherit the same kind of world. So we have a lot in common. And that speech is not only eloquent, it's completely at variance with the tone, the mood, and the attitudes that I see in both the Democratic Party in Congress and which you see in Washington uh, in the establishment group, which has plenty of time to find what's wrong with Russia and vilifying. And there's oh, lots of things to say, but they don't find much room for dialogue and deep diplomacy on the big, big issues. The danger of a nuclear blunder, which is very dangerous, given the fact that the only thing that holds the nuclear missiles back from America or from Russia is a bunch of computer systems and a bunch of, you know, bunch, hundreds, maybe thousands of human beings that are subject to a lot of error. And then, of course, the climate change, which is getting more attention, but America can't do it without China and Russia. And how the hell we do that when we're spending most of the public airtime is in vilification, not in communication. So I don't want to say the world is not full of bad things and uh, leaders doing bad things. But of course, when we look at our own country, we see a lot of statements about the bad things America's been doing. So I think from a Christian point of view, I could almost say from a Jesuit point of view, there is something called humility. And there is something from the New Testament about not looking at the spot or the moat in the other person's eye and not even seeing the beam, the much bigger distortion in your own eye. So there's a lot of that going on. And I think leaders that can be both strong and authoritative, but open to dealing with other kinds of leaders from other cultures, particularly when we're looking at a world that could blow up in literally a day or two. And climate change is moving a little slower, but the catastrophic consequences are very foreseeable and recognizable. And at the current step, nothing's going on. Uh, and I'll make a one exception to that. Joe Biden just put out a $2 trillion plan, which is quite good. So I'd say that's a note of optimism. But in terms of your original question about, you know, who do I look to as leader? Um, I don't know that I looked at anybody, but if you had to say, I seem to have emulated my father, whether I thought I was doing that or not. But I certainly, at an early age, uh, certainly when I was studying for the bar exam at the governor's mansion and heard a lot of the hot disputes and even uh, arguments with the politicians there in the mansion, uh, I said, boy, that looks exciting. I think I'll go for it. So I moved to LA and with a few years, I was secretary of state and then governor and the rest, as they say, is history. But as far as having a mentor, I never heard of the word mentor until, I don't know, the last 10 or 15 years. And I guess I missed that. And then the idea, who's your role model? I, I didn't have any role. I mean, I had role models because whoever was around, you, you don't learn in a vacuum. So I'd say just reality is the big role model as you look at it, both the good, the bad, and the indifferent. So basically, I, I, I have to debunk a little bit all this mentoring uh, who who's your idol kind of thing. You know, no, I like American Idol 
but I, I don't have one myself. That's interesting. Let's talk a little bit about California. We had Lieutenant Governor Kunalakis on the show this week and she referred to California as a nation state, which I've seen reference to before. And she made some really important points about trade in California, about the percentage of foreign-born individuals in California and the international implications of both. And California's size in every dimension, you know, I see it as a unique state unto itself. Do you think it's a nation state? Do you think that's an accurate portrayal? Well, it's a metaphor. Uh, we're not a nation state. We don't have a foreign policy. We don't have a, a central bank or federal reserve, so we can't print money. And that makes it uh, quite difficult when we run into a recession like we're in now. Also, uh, I've been thinking, yeah, we're very powerful. We got Disneyland, we got Google, Facebook, Intel, Qualcomm, all sorts of things. We got Yosemite, the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, this is a big place, 40 million people, uh, $3 trillion of measured GDP before the COVID problem. But let me just give you an example. If we're a nation state, how come California can't manufacture enough tests, uh, COVID testing kits to test hundreds of thousands of people every day and thereby uh, not have to lock down everybody, but just identify rapidly all those who are infected and isolate them instead of the 40 million people. And so far, California hasn't. I think China's done it. And I think South Korea uh, and Taiwan, they're nations. So what, I guess what I'm saying is if we were a nation state, we would order the businesses to come to the governor's office and say, guys and ladies, we need test kits by the millions. I mean, China did 8 million in a week or something. That's what we need to do if we want to open up. And if we don't have the tests and we don't have the vaccine yet, then you lock everybody up and then you get a depression or a massive recession. And that's no good. If you open it all up, then you're getting a lot of people dying, a lot of people sick. That's no good. There's only one answer forward. Make the tests nation state and get them out there by the hundreds of thousands, identify the people, put them in isolation in a secure place for two weeks, and then we should get rid of it like Taiwan and South Korea greatly minimized it. So there's my thought on nation state activity. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point because, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is when we get through this COVID era, what are the lessons going to be? Do you foresee a way in which we can organize as states to make it so that the federal government cannot abandon its responsibilities in that way? Or this is just the luck of the draw for who's president and what they want to do? Well, I'd say it's that currently. I do think the federal government has the power. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt very shortly after Pearl Harbor, ended the production of private automobiles and began the production right. of Liberty ships yeah, yeah. and tanks and all the rest of it. He did that. And they started making Liberty ships, I think, in, in days. But we can't make test kits in days, even though China can't. What is it? So right now, we're dependent on the president of the United States, and he's utterly failing. In fact, I'd say that's his absolute number one failure. But in the meantime, I still think that California, because it has several billion dollars in the bank, could call together at some summit all the different manufacturers, innovators. I mean, Google makes all sorts of things. And we have other people in the biotech industry. We have CRISPR-4. We have so much. Why can't they all be brought in and say, okay, guys, this is what you got to do. How much? And then haggle a bit over the price 
put the money on the table and get the damn test in a few weeks. And get New York to do the same thing in a few other states. And get maybe five other states. But we're not doing that for some mysterious reason that I hope you will discover or I will or somebody will very soon. Yeah, well, you know, I'm at a law school. And I want to turn a little bit to uh, criminal justice and criminal justice reform, which I know you've thought yeah. about. And just talk a little bit about, you know, you saw that the first federal execution was authorized by the Supreme Court and carried out this week, first time in 17 years. And I'm concerned about where our criminal justice and our criminal justice reform efforts are headed. Do you think that, just for your impression, that there's enough of a momentum for criminal justice reform in the country, or that we may be taking a step backwards as this execution? Well, Trump is a step backwards in his very essence. So yeah, he actually, this poor guy, I don't know whether that's politics or just ideology or belief on the part of the Trump people, but it obviously was not needed. It was not needed to save the republic or save any victims, he was securely locked up. But uh, I do think uh, we're more poised for police reform, jail reform, prison reform, criminal justice reform. Now, having said all that, it's so big to do that. And just last week, the California legislature was presented a bill that would make available elderly parole. In fact, the exact bill was to lower from 60 to 55 the age at which a long-serving inmate could go before a parole board. It was not to put him out the door. It was merely to say, you can go before a parole board, often, you know, 10, 20 years after they were put in. That could not get the votes because one of the um, assemblymen uh, stood up and scared the hell out of him. Boy, you're going to let a bunch of old elderly people who are vicious and dangerous onto the street. And I, I agree, there are some very vicious elderly people, but that doesn't mean they're gonna get parole. We have a very thoughtful parole board and they turn down more paroles than they give. Anyway, so I think we got reform. The prison system in California has gone from 173,000 down to, I don't know, 110, 105 for a number of reasons. Mostly it's the Supreme Court that ordered California to reduce its population. That's a big thing. I also was responsible. So yeah. uh, we did realignment and we had some propositions on the ballot and then they're continuing. So there's a lot of progress being made, but for the basic essence, our key method of punishment is to put somebody in a cage for a very long time. And the unaddressed question is what varieties of punishment, consequence, retribution could we make available? And if it is being in a cage, what is the nature of the cage? What else goes on in the environment of the prison or the jail? And how long should it be? And some people say, well, 25, uh, life, life without parole, 15. Those are very long years. I don't think we've ever come face to face with a problem. What happens when you do something horrible? Okay, you kill somebody. You knife somebody. You rape somebody. You molest a little kid. Okay, all bad. I, I don't want to give you the little minor shoplifting stuff. Okay, bad. All right, if they get convicted, you put them in, in uh, prison somewhere. Now, is it a year, five, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, or do you take them out uh, on, a, on a wheelchair when they're 70 and 80, which is what we're doing now. And all I'm saying is real reform has to deal with what is punishment? What is the consequence 
of bad deeds. And a lot of that's socially determined. I think there are a lot of disproportionate consequences that are visited upon poor people. And certainly there are ethnic and racial aspects because of the disproportionate income that's enjoyed by people uh, or suffered by people in America. So I think we're further than we've ever been, at least in the last 30, 40 years, but it's not clear how far we're gonna go because we got a lot of issues. You got the violent crime, then you got the mental illness, the dual diagnosis when they, they're addicted. And we've got hundreds if not thousands of people on the streets of San Francisco and Los Angeles that shoot up. I, I was shocked driving, the highway patrol driving me in an official car and I look out the window and here's some guy rolling down the sleeve of this woman and shooting her up. Okay. I said, wow. And that goes on all the time. So the answer is we're poised for more police reform, uh, restraint on, on shootings and things, getting into implicit bias. And we can look at the punishment, the alternatives, the sanctions, the reentry, all of that. But there's a lot of cultural resistance. There's a lot of political resistance. And right now we're in big recession with COVID. So there's some hope, but there's a lot of tall mountains to climb. Well, there's a lot of political and cultural resistance, but there are countries in the world that have handled criminal justice in a more open-minded way and in a more attention to rehabilitation. Is there any country that you think's done a pretty good job with this that we could model ourselves on or be conversant with? Or I don't know. I think maybe the Scandinavian countries, I'm not yeah. sure. I haven't really looked at it. But I, did, I am told that in Germany, people don't wear prison garb. They're given more respect. So I think one of the big questions here... What we do, if I could use one of your academic terms, which I don't <laughs> like to use, please but do. Since you're, since you're an academic, uh, you often hear the term essentialize. You're essentializing a trait, and it could be a gender trait. Uh, and people say, no, wait a minute, I am free. I have many different manifestations of myself. Don't pigeonhole me. Well, we, that's exactly what we do with crime. In fact, uh, Jean Genet, yeah. famous poet and thief from France, he once wrote that uh, he became a thief when he uh, burglarized something, or sold something, and someone yelled, pointed at him and said, you thief. And at that point, he identified uh, with being a thief, and then he became that as his career. And what we do is we take people, we call them predators, we call them robbers, we call them killers. Well, they're actually also human beings who have killed, uh, who have robbed. And the truth is that there is redemption, there is evolution, there is change, there is awakening, and that happens to a lot of people. I know thousands of people, lifers, murderers, have gone out and have lived very productive lives. So I think we need, first of all, a much clearer understanding of what uh, the criminal justice system should be, how do we make it work, and what's human? And I would say that you can look at it from a, from a Benthamite, uh, pragmatic, mm -hmm. utilitarian cost-benefit, or you can look at it as a Christian forgiveness redemption, or you can take the kind of the academic postmodernist term essentialized. People aren't their acts necessarily. Maybe some are, some never change, but people can do something and still be better in a week, in a year, in a decade. So I think we have to 
have some opening. And I'm afraid because of the democratization of the criminal law and uh, criminal justice process, it becomes a matter of popular appeal. And the populace doesn't have the nuance of perhaps someone who has more time and more distance to think about it. So it's basically lock them up. In fact, if you heard one of the most uh, famous and popular rallying cries for Donald Trump in his campaign for president was lock her up, lock her up. Or you might say before, not Hillary, but you say lock them up and throw the key away. Well, it doesn't quite work that way because then we got to maintain the prison. They get older that we have gerontology. We, it's a nightmare. So yes, we are poised and open for more criminal justice reform, but I'd say it's pretty tentative and weak need at this point. We need a more thoroughgoing confrontation with our criminal justice system. What are we trying to do here? And you can attack it from a lot of angles. Uh, no doubt people do bad things. What do you do when they do a bad thing? How can you quickly get them better? And then of course, how do you account for this when you, uh, you hurt somebody? You know, we're hearing all this stuff about assault and sexual misbehavior. Well, what is the appropriate penalty? I think that is a discourse that we don't hear very much of. So there's one question is, you know, did you do it? How bad? Uh, how's the victim hurt? How bad? And then, well, what, then what? What's the compensation? What's the atonement? You know, you have a whole religion, Judaism, that at its essence is about atonement. And well, how do we do that? Is it just a cage for 25 or 30 years? Or are there other alternatives? And you can tell by the way I, I asked the question, I think there are plenty of alternatives and I would like to see more states doing more different experiments on how to make the prison system more human, more sensitive and more effective at the same time. Now, one of the things that your remarks speak to is the educational system because how a person and how a culture and how a society learns to think, learns to grapple with problems, is educated, knows prior philosophers, et cetera, prior experiences, all comes from an educational system. I'm wondering if, you know, given what's happened in our country these days, and I know California spent a lot of time thinking about its educational system and how to make it and keep it robust. Do you think that this is an important priority in addition to all our other priorities that education would have oh, an effect? Yeah. Yeah, well, it has an effect, but by the time a kid gets to school at four or five, He's had an education at the deepest level, at yeah. the level of imprinting, at the level of taking in the imagery, the emotions, the feelings of identity with his parents, with his cousins or her cousins, the neighbors. So th that's a lot. Now you take uh, the fact that we have millions of people who are living, uh, I'll put it softly, in highly stressed situations, you know, very uh, low amount of cash or income, uh, difficult situations, neighborhoods where success is not the typical story for the block. And you have all of that. So it's very hard to have an increasingly unequal society and then turn around and say, but we want, well, once they get to be fifth grade or maybe childcare, we're gonna fix them by a teacher who is bound, who cannot do what a mommy and daddy does. You can't pick them up and kiss them and hug them. You have to be distanced. And now you've got to be more distanced with COVID. But it's more bureaucratic. 
And I think the key are the parents and the key to the parents is a decent income and opportunity and the security that they can pay attention to their kids other than just doing their utmost to survive. Okay, so let's say President Biden is in office uh, next year and there's this panoply of issues in front of him. Let's say that children are a high priority or the highest priority. What can the federal government do? What should the federal government do? Okay, you said children, and I immediately said parents yeah. or family. Right. Children aren't walking around by themselves. They're in a, a nest. Uh, what's that like? And if you say, oh, we're going to give you a really high quality education, but your father or your mother is going to be basically hand to mouth and can barely make it and can be completely stressed and irritable, that's not going to work. So we've got to deal with the overall problem of the increasing immiseration of so many millions of Americans. That's number one. Number two, I think the, the federal government can't help, but uh, you know, the federal government is 7% of the kindergarten through 12 educational spending. It's about states and localities. So it, it, you can envision them doing something, but uh, I think it's the mostly get people working the green $2 trillion plan is going to put a lot of people to work. Apprenticeships, make it easier for unions to organize. Have a way so that the, the income that people can earn uh, can support a family. And then you can have federal aid to education. But it's not the biggest. It, it will grow. It could grow under a Biden. But even if it doubled, it still only be 14% of the budget of schools. Got it. A lot of when, when I hear you talk, you talk a lot about uh, time, the conceptions of time. And a lot of this will take a lot of time, but Americans are impatient people. They're impatient when it comes to COVID rightfully. They're impatient when it comes to the economy. They're impatient overall. Do you think that there's a possibility? First of all, do you think we're an impatient culture? And I guess if we are, do you think there's a way to, to learn how to accept a more gradualistic evolution of needs requirements, goals? Well, that, I think in the age of Twitter and the 30-second ad, yeah, like there is an impatience. People's attention span seems to be shorter. I don't know. I guess that's true. I mean, if you don't have television, you don't have Twitter. I remember somebody telling me, I have no idea whether this is true, since I'm definitely not acquainted enough. When I was down in Chiapas, Mexico, far south of Mexico, I often see indigenous Mexican people walking uh, along the road. And some people say, you know, they, they, they can walk for 10 hours. And uh, they're going to the village or wherever, because there are people throughout Chiapas that are very far from any village. And so I think there's a patience there. Now, maybe that's a stereotype, and I don't know what I'm talking about. But I'm trying to figure out, can we be more patient? We could. But I have to say, when you have your cell phone and you're looking at Twitter, uh, that's a couple hundred characters and you're on to the next thing. So can we create more patience? I don't know how you do that. I don't know. Is that meditation? Is that self-denial? That doesn't sound like the program for today. You know, the modern world is speeded up. And yeah, we could slow it down. That, that's what Mario Savio said at Berkeley. He said when the machinery... Uh, the bureaucracy becomes so inhuman, so mechanical, you have to throw your body into it and stop it. So that would be a type of, of patience, I suppose. 
I'm assuming from all of your comments that you see this upcoming presidential election as critical. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it goes without saying. I have a question about the shape of American history overall. You know, there's a sense that we're on a pendulum and we go through bad times and it comes back and we go through good times. But right now we've had a number of negative things happen in a row. First, our war on terror and all of its permutations. Now we have the COVID virus. There's climate change disasters going on around the world. Do you think we're just on a different trajectory or that this kind of complacency that you read about and you hear people say that there's going to be, oh, don't worry, things will come back. This is just the natural course of affairs. Do you think we're finally out of that mindset or not? Well, first of all, we don't know what the future brings. Certainly people in 1914 in May or June didn't know we we're going to have World War I and that uh, 45 million people would die and that five empires would collapse. And even today, we're still fighting the Middle East over the lines drawn after World War I. So some public health people expected the, the pandemic. So there is some complacency, but you got to get ready. First of all, we got complacency about the inequality. I mean, it was just a year ago when the Senate and the House, three years ago, voted a massive tax giveaway, uh, tax cut to corporations that use it to buy back their stock, owned by mostly very wealthy people, not all, but many, and they got richer and richer, even though we're getting more unequal. So that shows not only we're complacent, but we're sound asleep, or at least the we that is embodied in the U.S. Senate. So we got to change that and the House at that time. So yeah, the president's important. Uh, we're complacent about inequality. Uh, I don't know that we're complacent about race right now. I think we, uh, we're getting our attention called on that one. And climate change, slowly, but of course we're not doing what we need to do. And then on the nuclear, it's a very remote. I mean, the New York Times doesn't even wanna print a story that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists put out on the nuclear doomsday clock that it's now more dangerous than it was even during the height of the Cold War. That's not a story. So people are not worried about that big threat that is exacerbated by the lack of dialogue with the Russians. That's number one. Number two, the cyber, the ability of these new technologies to trigger a false nuclear alert is getting very real. So we gotta be in touch with these Russians every day. This won't wait. We, there are enough nuclear weapons, and all the scientists say that, that you can end all human life in a matter of a few days. So you think you got a problem in America? This big problem, nobody is talking about, except maybe Bill Perry and Sam Nunn and a few people like that who've been at it all their lives. So I would say, yeah, we need patience, but we gotta get going because we've got some big problems America has 700 bases throughout the world. We're involved in Somalia, Sudan. Uh, we've got people over in Niger, Afghanistan for 18 years. God, I'm still in Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. And uh, at home, the economy is in shambles because of the virus. The divisions are great. So we need to turn inward, get our act together, take care of these big problems. And uh, you know that is what we need a leader for. And uh, the election coming up, it's obvious that Biden is, is, I think, the only decent choice where we've got a fighting chance to get at these big problems. And when you say turn inward, you mean 
be reflective? You mean get our house in order? You mean both things? What do you mean? Yeah, all, the, all of that. Well, I just say if, if our military budget is 780 billion, yeah. and it's bigger than four or five than Russia and China and India and Germany and France and Great Britain combined, well, I think there's room for looking into that. I don't say like Trump, you know, just isolate. No, I'm not saying that. But I mean, a country with a lot of Democrats, uh, almost all the Republicans, and the New York Times, I think the Washington Post, all cheerleaded the war in Iraq based on, if not a lie, a complete distortion, and hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. Now, nobody calls that a crime. But I can tell you, if uh, you were driving 90 miles an hour down the street and you thought you had more room than you did, you run over somebody, uh, you'd be charged with manslaughter or felony uh, murder of some kind. So look, we've got to work with our allies, create diplomacy that is serious with our competitors and look at our home base. You can't be the indispensable power, the big boss of everything, the Mediterranean, the Gulf, uh, the Pacific, the Atlantic, the China Sea, the Indian Ocean, uh, you name it. We can't do all that if we're completely divided at home. And we are divided at home. 40% of the people approve of President Trump. Another 45, 47 feel just the opposite. And those differences reflect divisions. And we're going to need a leadership and a willingness on the part of people in politics, but in churches and academia and the rest to find some common ground. And we're going in the exact opposite direction. Intolerance is more the order of the day than trying to identify and understand what your adversary is saying. So people are getting very uptight about their beliefs. And I think we've got to focus on facts and we've got to understand the world is not the way we want. The Trump people have to understand a lot of people are not Trump people. But the non-Trump people have to understand there are a lot of people who think this guy Trump is sent by God to save us. So uh, that is hard. It's like uh, it's almost the Civil War. We're divided on, on it's not slavery, but uh, the divisions are very deep. You know, we always end the podcast with thoughts about hope. You know, yes, we're living in dire times and it's hard to see what can happen and hard to be optimistic. But if you had to turn our heads in the direction of something to be hopeful about, however small or large, do you see a realistic sense of hope? Well, first of all, we're not at war. Millions of people aren't dying. That's a big plus. Okay. Uh, some people are dying in Syria. A lot of people are in bad shape, but things could be a lot worse. So I, I offer that as my baseline of hope. It can get worse and it hasn't yet. So that's good. Now we're in a good position, relatively speaking. Secondly, we have an open society. We have multiple channels of communication. We can exchange our ideas. You know, we were able to talk about our, our challenges and our problems in an open way, and that gives us more chance to correct. And then thirdly, we have a lot of technology. Uh, we can solve the climate challenge if we want. Look at just in the last month or two, federal government has spent trillions of dollars. We could have taken that money and uh, you know, built high-speed rail, solar and wind and battery technology to reduce fossil fuels. So we have a lot of capability and we have a lot of openness. 
so what the whole, I don't know if it's hope. I think it's very exciting. I think we need zest. We need uh, energy. We need that, that belief. We can do a lot and we can do a lot. But if you're telling me, I think hope, you know, hope is a Christian virtue along with faith and charity. But some people say hope, you know, hope can be uh, passive. I hope you're okay. Well, but I'm not going to do anything to make you okay. So I think we want to get more understanding, clarity, commitment, consensus, and be activated to do what we can uh, where we are. So I would say that uh, wouldn't describe hope exactly, but I would certainly say it's not hopeless. We have no evidence to say that we can't have a very bright future. We have evidence that we might well not, but it's up to us. But us is not you and me. Us is America, Russia, China, India, Arab states. So we're now at that point in the planetary experience that you got to do it locally, but it's got to fit globally. And that's the pandemic. You can't solve it with a few countries. We got to act locally, got to wear a mask, and then we got to act in concert, which is not what we're doing yet. So the pandemic should bring us together. The threat of nuclear blunder should bring us together. The threat of climate change should bring us together. But so far, they're not. But the logic, I think, is overwhelming. And I'm hopeful that after this November election, we'll see things more clearly and be on a very positive glide path. So zestful, energetic, yeah. hope so <laughs> on some level. Right? Well, but I have to tell you about hope. Albert Camus, in his Myth of Sisyphus, said that the last spirit that came out of the last, yeah, got out of the, uh, what is it, the uh, evil spirits uh, came out of that amphora, that pot, uh, Greek, Greek mythology. Okay. He said it was hope. He said it was hope. You sit around hoping. No, it's not, it's not hope. It's action. It's determination. And that's based on clarity. And he used another term, if I may quote uh, such a forgotten guy as Albert Camus, was polar lucidity. That, think of the ice at the North Pole on a bright, shiny day. Very clear, polar lucidity. Let's look at our problems at home, abroad, technologically. And then when we see them, then let's take action based on facts and science and understanding and, and goodwill. So that would be the way I would reframe your question. So we have to be the best human beings we can be. We can be, yep. That's right. Governor Brown, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Good. Be well. I enjoyed it. I hope you did. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at Center on National Security. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.